essentially you're asking yourself, am I racist? Right. And that is not an easy conversation to have with yourself. But those are the tough sorts of conversations that we as physicians need to have. And at the end of the day, it's our job just to take care of people. It doesn't care who, you know, it doesn't matter who they are, what they look like. It's our job to take care of people. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Algae Partners podcast. My name is Chilka. And in honor of Black History Month, we want to do something a little different and showcase one of our amazing providers, Dr. Eric Williams. Dr. Eric Williams grew up in the Buckeye State before traveling east to Baltimore, Maryland to attend the Johns Hopkins University. His Allergy and Immunology Fellowship training was performed at Wake Forest in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He now works at Allergy Partners in the North Carolina area. Dr. Williams is also the author of a memoir entitled Eric's Anatomy, A Physician's Tales of Humanism in the Practice of Medicine. I'll also be joined by Dr. T, Dr. Thea Garajan is a board-certified allergist and immunologist. He practices in Northern Virginia outside of Washington, D.C. He is a former board member for Allergy Partners and is active in National Allergy and Immunology Specialty Societies. Thank you so much, Chilka, as always. And I would like to welcome my good friend, Dr. Eric Williams. Uh, as his intro said, he's a very accomplished physician uh, in Allergy Partners based in North Carolina. Eric, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks enough for having me. I'm excited. So Eric, I wanted to start off with, this is a different kind of podcast for us. And I wanted to start it off sort of talking about yourself, where you're from, where you were raised, kind of your upbringing. Yeah, sure. So I'm an Ohio guy. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and I live in North Carolina now, but Ohio will always be home. We'll always consider Ohio to be home. Uh, my my father's a physician, he's a family practitioner, and my mother uh, is a retired school teacher now. So when I was growing up, I knew a few different things. I knew, you know, from my mother that I was supposed to do well in school. I was a soccer player, um, and so I, I played a lot of ball, so I knew soccer. And then I knew medicine. I didn't know anything else. I knew I wanted to be a doctor like my father. So uh, Johns Hopkins recruited me to play soccer, so I went out. I, I it was a uh, pretty easy decision. I went to Baltimore for four years to play soccer and to study at Johns Hopkins and then came back to Columbus for medical school and uh, met my wife in Columbus. She was in law school while I was in med school. We met randomly on campus at Chipotle on High Street. And, uh, and the rest Isn't that where all great romances start in Chipotle? <laughs> That's where ours started. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and then we, we uh, were in Philadelphia for a few years, had my son while we were in Philly. I was training at Thomas Jefferson Hospital. So I have a, a nine-year-old boy, um, and he's uh, big into basketball, and, uh, you know, he he's, uh, has the same personality as my wife, which is really fun to watch as he grows. And I practice down here in Salisbury, but we live in Davidson, um, and uh, which is uh, just where Steph Curry went to college is, is, is uh, how people know of Davidson College. So that's our hometown. My wife has since finished practicing law and she's opened a wine bar. So she makes her own wine and, and sells her own wine at a bar and she's enjoying life and my son's enjoying life. I'm enjoying life. So all is good down here. So uh, I knew a lot of that already because Eric and I are friends and for a full disclaimer, I am also an Ohio guy. Uh, and as Eric, I'm a very proud Ohioan. Uh, and for those of us who uh, don't live there anymore, but were raised there, we will always consider Ohio home. So I do appreciate that very much with you, Eric. And I also know that <clears throat> where you went to high school, uh, one of my best friends also went. So I know a little bit about uh, a little bit of your upbringing as well. Eric, as Chilka mentioned in the introduction, you wrote a book that was released recently called Eric's Anatomy, A Physician's Tales of Humanism in the Practice of Medicine. Why did you decide to write a book? I've wanted to write since college. Um, I took a course, you know, I needed, I needed to, to, to boost my GPA. And so I took a course in college called The History of the American Automobile. It's uh, by Stuart Leslie. If you need to boost your GPA at Johns Hopkins, that's the course that you take. So I took that course and it was, it was actually, it was an awesome course because I had the first opportunity my first opportunity to sort of write, you know, creative writing, I didn't have to write about Shakespeare or write about a poem that I wasn't interested in. 
I got to write creatively and I really enjoyed it. And to some degree it was cathartic. Um, and and uh, my professor, Stuart Leslie, enjoyed the book as well. And he tapped me on the shoulder following class in the spring of my senior year and asked me what I was going to do after college. And I said, well, I'm planning on going to med school. And he said, well, if you want to write, um, you know, you may have a career in, in writing. And I, I've always just sort of thought of that and remembered that and filed that away. Didn't have any time to write in med school, didn't have any time to write in residency or in fellowship, but I had all of these experiences that really tugged on my heart as I went through medicine, learning medicine, practicing medicine. And um, some of these experiences really demonstrated, you know, the humanism that exists amongst physicians, amongst nurses, amongst medical students. And I wanted to capture that in a book. I also wanted to capture some of the uh, less humanistic qualities of, of some of my colleagues. And so that's why I wrote it. Um, I'd started back in 2018 at a buddy's wedding. I had some free time and I said, well, I'm going to start writing. And two years later, I published this thing. So I, I, I was able to read the book and it's, it's truly fantastic. It's an easy read. As a physician, I saw so many parallels in my own journey, but I think even those people who aren't in healthcare actually, especially people who aren't in healthcare, there's just so much that you talk about, shed light on, expose. You know, I was struck by the honesty and at times brutal transparency, including your own shortcomings through your own journey. Were you concerned when you were writing this book how it would make you look? I didn't have that concern until it was time to publish the book, to be honest with you. It's <laughs> easy to sort of write, you know, it's, it's easy to write and to, and to be, uh, you know, very transparent, very uh, honest, very open, and not have anybody looking over your shoulder and reading it. But when it's time to publish and you know that this thing is going out to as many people that decide to buy the book, then... Um, you know, I, yes, I had some apprehension, but it's, it's, it's my truth. You know, it's, it's an honest book and it's my truth. And, and that's one of the things that I believe in. That's one of the things that I live by. And so when it was time to publish my truth, I did have some apprehension. Uh, there are some very personal topics, but uh, you know, there are people that experience, that are experiencing the same sorts of thoughts and emotions, uh, feelings that I have. And uh, I, I'm sure, like, as you said, you can relate to it. And so, um, you know, there's some hesitancy there, yes. But, but, but nonetheless, I was really happy that I was honest and I had my truth published. You know, you, you touched on so many aspects in your book. Some of the themes that I found centered around mental health. You actually mentioned a couple of stories of suicide. One was a uh, physician professor at um, your medical school. And one was a, I believe was a medical student, a co-student um, who committed suicide. Uh, I was really taken aback by those stories. What kind of impact did they have on you? Yeah, sure. If you would, if you'd allow me just to explain uh, one, one of my attending, uh, I use pseudonyms in the book. His name is Dr. Kilmer. And I met Dr. Kilmer years ago. I sat next to his son, at the Columbus Academy jazz band in high school. And so I met him at that time and he was a, just a really, really interesting guy. He was, um, he was dramatic, he was funny, um, he uh, was, was effusive, he, he, he spoke in hyperbole. Um, I compared him to Doc from Back to the Future. Just a really, really interesting guy. And he was on staff at Ohio State when my father was in medical school. So, you know, we, we had a couple of, of connections. And when I was at Ohio State, he was, the, um, he, was, he was in charge of board review for the students. And unfortunately, uh, we didn't do as well as we would have liked as a class. And that had happened a couple of times in a row. And Ohio State uh, made the decision to move on. And he was so upset and so depressed because he loved Ohio State. He loved 
his students, his medical students, and we loved him. So and sorry to interrupt, Eric, just want to give context to the listeners. These board examinations during medical school are extraordinarily important in sort of measuring your medical school versus other medical schools. And so that's where some of that importance comes and how it reflects sure. upon the, 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 the medical school as a whole. So sorry, just want to put some context there. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So we didn't perform as well. But you know, I remember talking to a medical student that saw the janitors carrying his desk out of his office in the medical school. And they said that he was just weeping uncontrollably. I mean, that's, that's how much he loved us as students. And, and, you know, we loved him just as much. And I saw him graduation and um, I, you know, shook his hand and told him, thank you. And he was very despondent. He didn't speak to me. I remember he just sort of nodded his head. And we got the news the following day, maybe a couple of days later that he had committed suicide. And so it, 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 it saddened me. It saddened me because I know his son. It saddened me because of just who he was. And, um, you know, all of us, all, 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 med- all the medical students were saddened by it. And so, you know, what is it, what sort of impact does that have on me? Well, um, you know, with, with Dr. Kilmer and with my, with my other colleague, a medical student who committed suicide, um, it sort of helped me to recognize the signs and symptoms of depression. And, and uh, our, our, our profession has the highest suicide rate as compared to all other professions. And so it's important to sort of recognize the signs and symptoms of suicide. And, you know, and that, and so when I was in residency, I, I had a friend who had very, very similar symptoms and I recognized it and I talked with him. And we ended up going to the gym together, hanging out together. And he had some really, really heavy stuff that he was dealing with. And, um, and it, it just, it reminded me of Dr. Tilmer in medical school. So that's the sort of impact that it has, that it's had on me, be able to recognize the signs and symptoms of depression and being, and being able to, to, um, to um, interact with people that are, that are, that are feeling that way and, and, you know, doing whatever it is that I can to help to prevent that sort of thing from happening. And you even talked about a little bit in your book, and I think I have some shared experiences of our own journeys through different parts of our lives um, where we may have been, if not sad, depressed. I know myself during certain parts of medical school or residency, this sort of arduousness, the hours spent at the hospital, the, the nonstop pressures of testing and making the grade. Um, and then in residency, not only do you have the hours pressures, but you're actually in charge of saving people's lives in a real responsibility for the first time in your life. And I, there were times when I was definitely overwhelmed by that. I'm sure, and you alluded to this in your book as well, that there were times when you felt that in yourself as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it can consume you. I don't know if you had that same, that same uh, feeling, but I felt like it was consuming me. Like every part of my being was about medicine from, you know, six o'clock in the morning to seeing the patient, to writing the note, to presenting uh, to an attending, um, looking professional, um, on rounds, being professional on rounds, um, et cetera. And it, it just, it can, it consumes you. And it, it can, um, uh, a state of anhedonia can set in. There are things that you used to do and enjoy that you're no longer enjoying. And that, that can have detrimental consequences, detrimental con- consequences on your mental health. Um, and so, and that's not, you know, I've, I've, I've had several conversations with several residents and, 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 and uh, physicians, and we've all said sort of the same thing. Um, so it's interesting that you point that out. I think a lot of us feel that way. I think, um, like, you, like you mentioned prior, it's not always natural to reach out and to, and to say something and to be um, uh, honest. Uh, yeah, I think. And again, you mentioned this in your book as well. One of the reasons I went into allergy was because the allergist who I ended up shadowing and working with in medical school was like the happiest guy I knew. Absolutely. And it was, 
And it was like, whoa, this guy, he's, he's married. He's not divorced. He has kids. He talks about his kids all the time. He, he talks about having dinner with his children and going to their activities. And versus some of the physicians I met, especially in the hospitals, just looked so sad and miserable. And there was a lot of divorce. And I looked at that and said, whoa, I don't want that. I, I want the happy guy life, not the uh, other guy or gal life. So for me, that was a big reason for me to actually go into to allergy. I think you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Me as well. Uh, and my mentor at Thomas Jefferson was a very happy guy. And yes, he was married and he wasn't yelling at medical students. Um, you know, and he, you, you could tell he enjoyed his life. He'd leave work and he'd go to dinner with his wife. Um, and, and that, that is not true, certainly of all uh, physicians in the hospital. There's certain specialties where I just don't understand how, um, I don't, I don't understand how they're getting joy out of their job and joy out of their life. I had, you know, I rotated with an attending who, um, you know, his kid played lacrosse and he didn't even know where he was in the lacrosse season. Was it the beginning? Was it the end? Was he at practice? Did he score a goal? You know, how do you not know these things? And so for me, that, that, so Al, that's one of the reasons that I went into allergies. Actually, it was the primary reason. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the science of it, but I, I kind of enjoyed the science of everything. But it was that sort of, I saw allergists who were happy and I wanted to be happy and I am happy. So that worked out really well. <laughs> Going back to residency, um, you, you really told some personal stuff, buddy. You know, you talked about how you lost a daughter during pregnancy um, while you were in residency. Uh, I, one, I just can't imagine that too. Um, how did you get through that? How did that, how did that change you after that experience? Yeah. So, you know, specifically she was uh, in utero and uh, I'll mention her name because we named her after my, my dad's uh, mother, Mary Q. And so uh, it was difficult a month because you know, as, as I, as I mentioned, you know, you go through this rigor of medical school, you go through this rigor and routine of residency and it's, you know, item after item after item, checkbox after checkbox after checkbox, rotation after rotation after rotation. And you sort of lose, you can lose uh, concepts or uh, lose some understanding as to what is important in life. What's important in life is, yes, your job. But, you know, I was married. I wasn't really paying much attention to my wife, um, you know, and she was um, sick when uh, she, she had her child. And I don't ever really remember being there. And it just, it saddens me to even to, to think about it. And when we lost our child in, in utero, and she was fairly uh, far along, it, it really made me stop and think about the things that are important in my life. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, so it's still, I mean, it's still difficult for me. Uh, but it made me think about the things that were important in my life. Is, is my job important? Of course it is. But, you know, so is church, so is prayer, so is family. And to uh, have sort of put all of those sorts of things aside um, to be a physician um, was wrong. And I needed to find some balance in my life. And so that's, that's what that you know, that Mary, and so I, I have always considered Mary Q to be a blessing, even though she's not with us. Um, but it, it really helped me to be a better father now. Um, as a, um, you know, as I was, I was heading down a track that just wasn't a good track. You know, you, you tell a story of Julie in your book. Uh, she was a post transplant cancer patient who ended up dying of complications you specifically talked about how she held hope for so long through her own journey. A personal story that has impacted me is my, my, my wife's mother passed away from breast cancer many, many years ago before I met my wife. My wife herself is a physician. And when her mother was at sort of a later stage, a physician taking care of her basically told my wife, there's no chance. There's, you should not have any hope. And it was something that struck her so viscerally. As in, how dare you take away my hope? 
how dare you do that? It's all I have at this point. And it's something that I've carried with me through my practice. During my time, during fellowship, when I took care of some really severe um, immunodeficient children who were unfortunately passed away, during those last days, I would, whenever I talked to the families, I would tell them, no matter what anyone tells you, don't lose your hope. Don't lose your faith. And it's something that has stuck with me all these years. When I read that story about Julie, that's really what I thought about. I thought about my wife. I thought about my own experiences. And I'm sure you carry that with you in your own practice today. Yeah, sure I do. Of course I do. Um, you know, Julie, um, I'm glad that you mentioned her. She was just a fantastic, fantastic um, um, human being. And she had such a great spirit about herself. Someone who was sick. Someone who was on a ventilator because of uh, inflammation in her lung, a condition that we call boop. Um, uh, and, but she was not sedated. You know, she could talk over the ventilator. And she was resilient. And she had survived cancer. Um, unfortunately, she was on steroids and developed a, a lung infection, which sort of led to this inflammation in her lung. But she was she was really um, a warrior, um, and and never and never gave up hope, um, and had a bone marrow transplant, and we thought all was well. But unfortunately, she had developed she developed this complication, and she was resilient and she was strong, and she decided that it was that life was not worth living on a ventilator. She was going to be on a ventilator for the rest of her life. And she decided that it was not worth living. And that doesn't necessarily, in my mind, mean that she gave up. Um, I think that, um, you know, she looked at sort of quality of life and she looked at the life that she had lived up to that point. And she was very happy and she was very satisfied. I could see that in her. And I still remember coming to work. She, she said that she was going to she wanted eight o'clock to be the time in which she passed away. That was significant to her. Eight o'clock in the evening. I wasn't on call, so I didn't see her when she passed. But I remember going to work the next day, and I had hope. I had hope. It was selfish hope because I was hoping that she had changed her mind, uh, but she hadn't. And um, she and she she uh, she had uh, she passed uh, the evening before. But her story is just is is inspirational. Um, and I, and, and so I'm glad that you got out of that story. That's exactly what I wanted people to get out of that story. Um, and so, um, and I, I sort of carry her with me and I carry her with me and I carry her spirit with me as I see my patients because they too should know um, that, uh, that, that they don't necessarily have to give up and have to um, um, uh, listen to what prior physicians have said. I've, I, I, like you, I've, I've cared for some very sick patients. Um, and that resilience that was in Julie, I, 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 I hope I can help to instill in some of my patients. And even you mentioned in the book, Julie's in, infectious personality, her, her light, that she didn't lose that even through this really long, illness. Um, I was inspired by that. To, yeah, see it is someone, to see someone who can go through so much and still not lose that inner light. It, it was just really um, inspiring. And I, I've seen that in some of my patients and some of the patients I've seen. But to read about it sort of in your eyes, it really took it home for me. Yeah, I mean, that's the, I mean, that's exactly what I wanted um, folks to get out of that chapter on Julie. Um, she's, I mean, she's tr just truly inspirational. Um, so I'm, I'm very pleased. That's, and that's actually my favorite chapter. Uh, that was the easiest to write. I've been thinking about that chapter literally for years, and it was so awesome to put it on paper. Um, if you're going to read any of the book, read the chapter on Julie. I can see how this was a very cathartic experience writing this. I can absolutely, absolutely. see that. Yeah. Um, I want to change gears a little bit and talk about another theme in your book, uh, which is race. So it is a podcast, so it's difficult to tell, but Eric, you are African-American. 
you have and mentioned a, that your father is a physician. What you didn't mention, but you did mention in the book, is he came from a community where becoming a physician was incredibly unusual. While you were growing up, did you realize how unusual this was and or how difficult it was for your father to get to where he did? Sure, of course. You know, my dad's from inner city Youngstown, Ohio, and he carries that with him. He carries that toughness with him. He carries that Youngstown uh, mentality with him. His dad was a steel, worked at a steel mill and his, his mom worked at a department store, you know, folding boxes. And so he, 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 he carries that with him. And we would go home, right, home, like go to Youngstown, go to his home, um, I don't know, two to three times per year. And we'd see where he grew up. And it wasn't as safe as the neighborhood that we lived in. Uh, there, uh, there, there, there weren't uh, parks and greenery the way that, uh, and, uh, very similar to our neighborhoods. Uh, people talked a little bit differently in Youngstown, Ohio. So I knew that it was different. Even as a kid, it was very, very obvious. As you said, you, you know some of my colleagues that went to Columbus Academy, the private school. Um, when, I, when I would go over to their houses, it was a lot different than the houses we'd go to in Youngstown, Ohio. So we knew. I'm sure there were, there were some slight differences. <laughs> oh, yeah, there was differences. So we, so we knew, um, and it, it just it made me even more proud uh, of my father. Um, it actually it made me very proud to know that my dad had come from where he came from and was able to sort of achieve what it is that, that you know, he's achieved. Um, it was unusual. Um, some people gave second looks when, when we would say that our dad's a doctor. <laughs> you got to remember now, this is the 80s and 90s. So, um, and, you know, he was one of the a few African-American physicians in the city of, the whole city of Columbus when we were growing up. But we, we certainly knew and were very aware that this was something special. You know, you mentioned in the book a story of being a child and witnessing your mother being called the N-word at the post office. One, I'm sure this is not the only story. Uh, two, what, what kind of impact did that have on you to, to see that with your own eyes, especially as a kid? Yeah, I remember, I remember it vividly. I was probably four years old. It was me, my brother, my sister. I got an older sister, younger brother. And we're in my dad's car. He's got this orange Mercedes Benz. I mean, this thing is slick. And so, you know, my dad, now he didn't have anything, right? He grew up, he didn't have anything, but he graduates from residency and he says, I'm, I'm gonna buy this car. So he buys this car. This is the car that I wrote about in the American, uh, the history of the American automobile. And, um, and so we're at the post office and, you know, a white man yells at my mom, where did a N-word like you get a car like that? And very menacing, I could see the evil in this man's eyes. I remember it vividly. And I remember being scared. Uh, and I, but I also remember my mom being tough. So my mom's from Newark, New Jersey. And she grew up in inner city Newark, New Jersey. And my mom's tough. And so, you know, I heard some profane things come from my mom's mouth. <laughs> and I'd be lying if I said I, didn't hear, <laughs> I hadn't heard them before. Uh, <laughs> but she gave it to him. Um, and, uh, and I remember my mom saying, looking at us saying, Hey, she, I remember her looking at us and saying, do you know why he said that? And, uh, I'm the middle child. And I spoke up and I said, is it because we're black? And she said, yes. And she said, but don't you let anybody talk to you like that. And so I, carry that chip on my shoulder man people ask me why I have a chip on my shoulder the chips from my mom um that she she's tough that you know that was I, I remember being uh frightened uh but I also re remember how tough my mom was and so that's what I remember about that those experiences and um and you can ask you know all my friends that I grew up with you know uh I'm equally as tough and when when we when I when I encounter those sorts of um, the sorts of circumstances as I do as I did particularly as a kid growing up, um, you know I was equally as tough. So that's what I remember about about that circumstance. You know, in case my name hasn't given it away, I am uh, Indian, uh, sub South Asian in uh, upbringing. So I'm brown. In my 
skin tone. But my experience is really different. Have I experienced some prejudice? Sure, I, I have. Outright racism, maybe, you know. Um, but a story like that, never. Uh, and I, I, I speak to this to say that I think there are a lot of people within my community who think, oh, you know, I'm not white. I've made it. It's great. Um, but I did, the, the experiences are different. They really, truly are. And a story like that is a, is a great example of, I'm from Ohio. I grew up the same kind of place you grew up. Sure. And I never experienced anything like that. Yeah, no, I mean, this was, this was consistent, man. I mean, this, that, that was, you know, a year later, my dad had to uh, take me off the bus because a fifth grader was calling me the N word and threatening to beat me up. So, you know, he had, he had to drive me to school. <laughs> my dad had to drive me to school in the morning so, to go to public school. Um, so, I mean, this was, this was something that was, that was constant and, and sort of, you know, it's, it's, it has stayed, it, it is, it has been persistent, let's just put it that way, even into, you know, in, a, adulthood, unfortunately. So to talk about that a little bit, tell me about any perceived racism or prejudicial ex- experiences that you've had while practicing medicine. Sure. Um, you know, when I was in medical school at, uh, at Ohio State, Miling Hall, I remember coming out of the uh, medical school two, three o'clock in the morning, my book bag on, I had a big, big coat on because it was cold. And uh, as I was walking to, to, towards my car, I had the police stop me and, and, and harass me and asked me what I was doing there at two o'clock in the morning. So said, well, I'm in medical school. Like, You're not in medical school. So no, I'm in medical school. I'm here studying. Nobody studies at two, three o'clock in the morning. No, I got an exam. I'm studying. I'm in medical school. Um, yeah, we all study till two or three in the morning, buddy. Uh, yeah, right. Like that's, well, maybe, you know, yeah, honestly, like that's maybe. normal. But of course, you don't. You didn't look like right. quite right. You quote unquote. You didn't look like someone in in that world. Right. Exactly. And then the other thing is maybe they didn't study at two or three o'clock in the morning. But that certainly doesn't mean <laughs> that I don't study at two or three o'clock in the morning. Um, and so, uh, and, and, but I was harassed. I mean, I had to show him my ID. I remember I had my uh, Robin's pathology book. So I showed him, they let me go me. And I was always respectful, you know, throughout, throughout that, that uh, encounter. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that, that's sort of started now. I mean, I've had, I've had attendings make um, comments that are just uh, reprehensible racist <laughs> comments. And I write about a couple of them in my book. Yeah, I wanted to touch on one sure. of those, actually, if you don't mind. So um, one of the events or experiences you write about in your book, uh, you were a resident in the criti- cardiac critical care unit. And this was an attending where you wrote multiple stories about how abusive this attending was just generally. And then a patient was being admitted into the CCU who your team was warned was openly racist through their language and behavior. The attending joked around and said, oh, Eric, you should be the one to see the patient. You know, I read that story and I both found it shocking and unfortunately unsurprising at the same time. Shocking in its audacity, but unsurprised that it happened. And I kind of got sad when I felt both of those things at the same time. Looking back, when you reflect on that story, do you wish you would have said something? Do you wish someone else would have stuck up for you? You know, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, so he's, he's audacious um, because, you know, there's certain circumstances where it would have gone, it would have gone a lot differently. Um, but he's audacious. He's audacious because it's his critical care unit. I wish that we would all say something when we see racism. The, the, the problem, though, Anant, is that I don't think people saw it as racism. I think that people just saw it as, you know, a joke, but, but th- those sorts of comments are microaggressions and those sorts of comments piss people off, piss, particularly black people. It pisses us off. It makes mad. It stresses us out um, because there's history behind that. The stories that my granddad told me growing up in Opelika, Alabama, if you heard those stories, funny to um, use that sort of language and direct that sort of language towards someone who's black. There's nothing that's funny. And so 
So yeah, I mean, it was audacious. Do I wish that other people would have said something? Yeah, I do. I wish other people would have said something, but it's too bad because most of them didn't think that there was anything wrong with it. Uh, I had one young lady who's, who, uh, who spoke up and, and said something to me, but no one said anything. No one said anything to him, uh, which, is, which is unfortunate. Um, I do. So one of the things that I do wish that you're just still trying to figure out, did he really just say that? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I do wish that I, I would have handled things uh, differently. You know, one thing that this brings up is diversity in medicine. Uh, I, I'm sure you as well. We both believe diversity in medicine is incredibly important. We have it in some ways, maybe some gender ways. I know my community, the South Asian community is well represented within medicine but not other communities, especially not the African-American community. I think that could help situations like this. How do we achieve more diversity in healthcare? How do we achieve a more representative physician provider demographic to where our country is? Look, man, we're out there. I think that you have to look for them. There's a study out of the uh, Harvard Business Journal that I reference quite frequently where, where if um, they, so they, they uh, submitted resumes to an employer that was hiring and they took one resume and made it very obvious based upon zip code and name that the person was black and then took another resume that made it uh, the same resume, except they changed the zip code and they changed the name to make it appear as if the person is white. There's a significant increase in callbacks based upon whether or not you're white. Or black. If you're white, you're significantly more likely to get a callback and an interview for the job. So there's that. And that exists. Well, I want to pause medicine. you on that study. That study, by the way, has actually been done more than once. So I believe it was done back in the, I want to say 80s or 90s originally. And then I think it was done again in the last like 10 to 15 years. More so it's recently like, in the Harvard Business Journal. Yeah. So it's not like an this is a, the, a long, long time ago. This has been reproduced even over a generation. Yeah, absolutely. You're, yeah, you're right. You're right. And so if you're, if you're interested in this topic, go, go um, uh, read about Quinn Capers, Q-U-I-N-N Capers, C-A-P-E-R-S. He's a cardiologist at Ohio State. He came to Ohio State the year that I graduated. So I think 2007, 2008. And he joined the admissions committee and one of the things that he did was he uh, had everyone on the admissions committee take a, take a test on implicit bias. And what they found was that everyone was biased, um, racially uh, biased. And so there was education um, and there was some understanding that this sort of thing exists. And what Ohio State found was that um, with that education and really with concentrating on making sure that you are interviewing and at least considering African-Americans for medical school, I should say blacks for medical school, they went from below the bar to one of the most diverse medical schools in the country. And, and, and catch this, their MCAT score and their board scores stayed the same. So it wasn't that there was lack of talent out there. It was identifying talent because we're there and we apply. And having decision makers that are more diverse themselves has to help with this. And obviously admitting more people into medical school, for instance, a more diverse class eventually hopefully helps create decision makers who are also more diverse. There are a couple of recent news stories I wanted to talk to you about. So back in June, Reed Hastings, the co-founder of Netflix and his wife, donated $120 million to the United Negro College Fund, Spelman College, and Morehouse College, which are historically uh, black colleges and universities. Even more recently, the uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies donated $100 million to black medical schools, which will provide financial aid to more than 50% of the nearly 800 students currently enrolled in these schools. One, I found those donations really encouraging, but it also felt like, man, it's a drop in the bucket. Like, this is great. It's better than we were the day before. But it also feels like there's just so much more as a society that we can do to promote more diversity in our executive levels, 
within and also within decision makers? Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. I mean, there's, it's one thing to throw money at a problem, but it's, it's, it's all, it's, it's something completely different to do something to sort of disrupt the system that exists because money is only going to fix the problem for X number of years. But after that money runs out, then if you haven't fixed the problem, then you find yourself back in the same position. So, um, so, so you're right. We need diversity and, um, and high, you know, in positions of management, um, uh, uh, positions of, you know, like such as CEOs. Um, we need, um, we need uh, directors of internal medicine and directors of surgery and, and, and directors of, uh, you know, psychiatry, et cetera, at these big institutions to be people that are representative of our uh, entire community. Um, and I think that one of the things that people find is that when they surround themselves by people that are different and don't look like them, they start to understand them more and, and perhaps can pick up on their own sorts of uh, uh, implicit bias uh, that, that exists. I mean, and I, I applaud, I applaud um, uh, Bloomberg and I, I, I applaud um, uh, Reed Hastings. Um, Hastings for, 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 you know, donating money. And I think that that's fantastic, but um, we need to make sure that there are people of color. Uh, there are competent people of color. We are out there and we need to make sure that we are put in um, high positions the same way that white people are put into these high positions. Um, that's the only way that this thing changes uh, systemically. So, you know, I want to get back to sort of talking about how this impacts healthcare. And I think race has an impact slash intersection with the criminal justice system, the education system, and public health. And they all kind of interact with each other. If you look at a couple of unfortunate statistics, African-American women are three times more likely to die of pregnancy-related causes than white women. African-American infant mortality is twice the rate for white infants. African-Americans are more likely to die from cancer and heart disease than whites, and they're at a greater risk for diabetes. There are obviously so many factors that go into, it, into this, but do you believe that racism is a public health crisis? Yeah, I absolutely believe racism is a public health crisis. And I think that that's why states in Michigan, and I'm sorry, counties in Michigan, counties in Ohio, counties in Wisconsin have stated the same exact thing. Um, that, so the statistics that you've described, I, also, I, I thought in, um, that, it, that, that black women were four times more likely to die uh, from pregnancy-related complications. Um, but that is, if you ask my wife about her um, uh, encounters, her, um, uh, when she was delivering my son, you know, her experience, um, and, and other black women, listen, uh, pull up what Serena Williams says. We get treated. I was just going to say that. I was absolutely. just going to say that. I, absolutely. And, and there's, there is data out there that demonstrates that people think blacks are, more likely or less uh, more likely to tolerate pain and so we're we, we are less likely to get pain uh medication um, so just, just a little bit of context about serena williams so serena williams for those who don't know is one of the world's history's greatest tennis players she is elite she is famous she is rich when she was giving birth to her child within the last couple of years i believe um, she has a past history of pulmonary embolism, which is like a clot that forms or travels from a different part of your body into your lungs and can be life-threatening. And she felt a sudden onset of shortness of breath. During her hospital stay, when that happened, during her delivery, she became very scared and specifically said, please get me a spiral CT with contrast. This is the test to find a pulmonary embolism. I have been practicing medicine a long time. So have you, Eric. There are very rarely times when patients are that specific as to the test that they want ordered. And Correct. when they are that specific, it means they know something. Right. The, at first, the staff at the hospital refused to get her that scan. They just said, oh, it's normal. You're short of breath after delivery. This happens all the time. It kept getting worse and worse. Eventually, they did do the scan and, and they did find a pulmonary embolism. If they would have waited even a little bit longer, 
that could have been a fatal experience for Serena Williams. And again, it does speak to something that you just talked about and even you know, having your wife go through that experience as well. Sorry, just want to put a little context into that. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so, so I mean, we, get, we get treated differently in our uh, patient uh, experiences and encounters. Uh, I feel thankful that I understand medicine so that, you know, I can, um, you know, I, I, that, I, that I can make sure that me and my family get, get the best care possible. But that's not, that's not true for everyone, obviously. Um, and, and, and we're seeing, so we are seeing the, um, if you look at COVID-19, we are seeing uh, the manifestations of uh, a public health crisis, racism as a public health crisis. African-Americans are more likely to contract the virus. We're more likely to be hospitalized for the vi- from the from a viral infection. And we're more likely to die after we've been infected. And so it's easy to say, oh, well, you're more, you're, you have more comorbidities and, you know, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, COPD, et cetera, that, that runs in, in African-American communities at a higher rate than other communities. But that's, I mean, but why is that? Uh, is that genetics? Or maybe it has something to do with African-Americans, three in, uh, one in three African-Americans are, are, are uh, living in a food desert compared to one in 12 uh, uh, Caucasians. Uh, or maybe it has something to do with physicians leaving area codes that are poor, that are black, and following private pay to other area codes. And so now you have to get off work. You have to take the bus across town to see your doctor to have your blood pressure controlled or your diabetes controlled. Those barriers sometimes are very, very difficult to overcome. And so that's why we're seeing this public health crisis we're more likely to be essential workers. We're more likely to have um, uh, uh, these comorbidities. And that's why we're more likely to die from COVID. And it's absolutely awful that in 2020, this is where we are still. So there's some manifestations of this, both in sort of the public health realm, as well as um, you know, criminal justice, education. There's also obviously a intersection with poverty. Um, Just to talk a little bit, and you mentioned one story about sort of back to the criminal justice and education standpoint. A couple of numbers that I found surprising. In 2018, there was an analysis of 20 million traffic stops. And it found that black drivers were 63% more likely to be stopped and 115% more likely to be searched. Although white drivers were more likely to actually have contraband. You mentioned that you underwent a sim- experience like this as well when you were in medical school. Talking about education a little bit, according to the U.S. Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights, although black preschoolers compromise 18% of the preschool population, they actually account for 42% of suspensions. Conversely, although white preschoolers make up 43% of the preschool population, they account for 28% of the suspensions. You use the word microaggression. Have you experienced these types of negative interactions, these types of potential microaggressions, and what kind of impact did that have on you? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the racism that I see now typically is microaggression sorts of uh, uh, racism. So, you know, uh, have I been pulled over? I can't tell you the number of times I've been pulled over. Most recently, I was pulled over because uh, the police officer said that I was swerving and also said that uh, my Johns Hopkins um, uh, plate, uh, my Johns Hopkins frame that goes over my license plate was not high enough and he couldn't see my entire plate. Um, So yeah, so of course I experienced these microaggressions um, we all experience these microaggressions and we talk about it and uh, talk about it in the, in, in the African-American community and they're stressful. Um, they're very stressful and, uh, and it's unfortunate. I think that there's um, a bit of denial, uh, despite uh, the statistics, but there's a bit of denial, uh, which, which even adds to the frustration. 
Um, so I appreciate you bringing up those statistics, but it's true. I mean, um, I, I don't know much about, about certainly about education, but I can, uh, in regards to, you know, school suspensions, et cetera, but I can tell you definitively that my interactions with the, uh, with the police, um, I have no white friends who have experienced it at the same level. You know, one thing that I kind of thought about while looking at these statistics was my own children. And I have two sons, very similar age to your son. I've never imagined having to have the talk with my kids. And I'm not talking about the birds and the bees. There's a different talk that fathers or mothers and their sons have in the African-American community. Um, have you had that talk with your son? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've started it. Um, you know, let me say this though. My son goes to, pri to public school uh, in Davidson. There was, a little, there was a little black girl in her class that was getting teased by a little white boy who was, you know, calling her racist names. And all of the kids took up for this little black girl and told her, told the, told the, told the boy that he was wrong. That's, uh, that's not how friends, you know, are supposed to talk to each other. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was awesome. Um, and I was really proud of his friends um, uh, because I, I, you know, I don't have, when I was growing up, I didn't have friends like that. Um, but it, so my hope is in our children. Um, have I had to talk with Max? We've, we've talked a little bit um, during a traffic stop once. Um, as to what it is that we are supposed to do. Um, but I didn't necessarily tell him why um, yet. I think he's picking up on it. You know, why is it important to put your hands at 10 and 2, to say yes, sir, to do exactly what it is that the police officer tells you, uh, et cetera? Um, why is it important to comply? Um, well, yeah, you're supposed to, and, you know, that you should treat the police officer with respect. But what he'll notice and what I've known, what I noticed was that that's not true for everyone, right? I mean, there's certainly, um, I, I certainly, and, and you'll see um, uh, if, you, if you pay attention, there, that, that the rules are different for us. Um, and, um, he, and, so, and so at some point I will tell him the reason that it's important for you to follow the rules is because you will get treated a lot differently by the police than your white friends. And, um, you know, you asked me to be honest and open, so I'm being honest and open. That is true enough. Um, you know, I, I was playing golf not too long ago, or maybe a few years ago with our buddy John Romeo um, out and uh, he's out in Raleigh now, but we used to live next to each other. And so we were on a golf course once and there was a dog that was on the green. And John is a, has a really gentle spirit. I don't know if you've been able to spend much time with him. but I, I do know him. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's a really gentle spirit. And so he goes and he gets this little dog, and he's, you know, talking in this little doggy voice to him. And he's trying to figure out like where this dog lives. And so he looks at the tag and, you know, he, and he figures out where the dog lives. And so it's right next to the green. So he picks the dog up and he walks over to their house and he rings the doorbell and there, no one picks up, no one opens the door. So he takes the dog and he goes, the garage is open. So he goes into the garage with the dog and then he knocks on the garage door and then, um, and, and, you know, all, and I'm sitting back and I'm like, there's no way on God's green earth, I would even step foot onto that man's uh, uh, yard with a dog, with his dog. Um, and the reason for that Anant, is because I know because of the color of my skin that I could be viewed as a threat. And at the end of the day, I want to come home to my family. Um, and so not a lot of people understand that. Um, we certainly understand it in the African-American community. I think that some of the video evidence that is coming out uh, is, is making it easier to understand. But, you know, that is, that, that, is, that is our life. So bringing it back to us as physicians, uh, how do you think we should approach this issue in the way we care for patients? Uh, in our interactions with our patients of different backgrounds, acknowledgements maybe of what they're experiencing that may be different than what I'm experiencing. Yeah, sure. So that's a great question. And it's not easy to answer. Um, uh, I, I think that it's important to, to be empathetic 
with your in your interactions with patients uh, to be empathetic. I think it's important to listen. Um, and I think it's important to ask yourself, am I giving this person the same care um, that I would be giving, you know, someone else that looks differently? Um, and I think those are important questions. Those are important questions to ask. But I, I have been around providers where it is very obvious that, that um, they um, prioritize patients, time spent with patients, based upon what, who the patient is and what the patient looks like. And so, you know, having that sort of honest conversation, and it's not an easy conversation to have with yourself because essentially you're asking yourself, am I racist, right? And that is not an easy conversation to have with yourself. But those are the tough sorts of conversations that we as physicians need to have because we're gonna see people from all different races and genders. And particularly now, man, you know, there's, there's there, you know, we, there are people that are coming out as bisexual, um, there are people that are coming out um, as transgender, out. transgender. Absolutely. Yep. 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 And, and, and at the end of the day, it's our job just to take care of people. It doesn't care who, you know, it doesn't matter who they are, what they look like, what their absolutely. sexual preferences. It's our job to take care of people. And so you, you, so I ask myself um, whether or not I have treated um, and given the same amount of time to every single patient, despite who it is they are. Eric, um, I can't agree with you more. I think personally, I've been an introspective person my whole life, but definitely more recently, I have worked hard to understand my own implicit biases. And we all have them. I don't care who you are. We all have them. Absolutely. But acknowledging that we all have them and trying to understand that acknowledging them, processing them is the start of a journey to try to make things better on an individual level. Um, Eric, I've, this has been the most fun and most interesting and most enjoyable podcast that I've done. I enjoyed uh, it too, man. Partners podcast. You know, it, these are topics that I'm, I know that you're incredibly passionate about, that I'm incredibly passionate about. I was a little bit worried, honestly. I wasn't sure how <laughs> open to be, but I wanted to be very open and transparent with my own thoughts. And I was really happy that you were as well. Thank you so much for thank being you. on the podcast. Thank you for being open. Um, uh, we really appreciate it. And thank you, Chilka, for always being a wonderful host and inviting us. Thank you. I just want to close it out by saying, you know, this was heavy, but it was so good and so relevant. Um, I can't wait to read your book. I ordered it as we were on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and, you know, I love how not, not only has this shaped you as a person, but also how you look at caring for your patients, which I think is huge. Um, I have so many other comments that I could have pushed in there, but it was just so great um, for everybody. Remember, take care of yourself because if you can't take care of yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, you can't take care of others around you. And as always, our family is here to take care of yours. Dr. Eric Williams grew up in the Buckeye State before traveling east to Baltimore, Maryland to attend the Johns Hopkins University. While at Johns Hopkins, he excelled both academically and athletically, serving as a two-year captain of the varsity soccer team. With induction into the Johns Hopkins Athletic Department Hall of Fame in 2018, following his undergraduate studies, he attended the Ohio State University, where he earned his medical degree and a master's in public health. He completed his internal medicine residency at Thomas Jefferson Hospital, where he also served as chief resident. His allergy and immunology fellowship training was performed at Wake Forest in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He now works at the Allergy Partners of Rowan Salisbury in the North Carolina area. Dr. Williams is also the author of a memoir entitled Eric's Anatomy, A Physician's Tales of Humanism in the Practice of Medicine. He has published literature in the American Journal of Medicine, the Journal of Asthma and Allergy, and Biomed Research International. In his free time, Dr. Williams enjoys playing golf, drinking wine with his wife, playing basketball with his son, and taking long walks with his French bulldog, Simone. This past August, Dr. Williams was also selected for the Quad AI's Practice Champion. This is a monthly award given to a community allergist who not only provides excellent patient care, but goes above and beyond to promote the allergy and immunology specialty and provide education and service to the public. 
Dr. Thea Garajan is a board-certified allergist and immunologist. He has been practicing since 2010 after graduating from Duke University Allergy and Immunology Program. He practices in Northern Virginia outside of Washington, D.C. He is a former board member for Allergy Partners and is active in National Allergy and Immunology Specialty Societies. He has published numerous scientific publications and received awards in research, including the American Academy of Pediatrics Section on Allergy Immunology Outstanding Abstract Award. He has been named a top doc in Washington, D.C. area several times. He strongly believes that open and robust communication between patients and providers leads to a better health care outcomes.